Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And we tend to have guests who fit that description of the intersection of food, passion, and making a difference. But we've never had two guests who fit it as well as Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, known to the world as Ben and Jerry. And we're so grateful for the two of you taking the time to be with us. Welcome. Yo, Billy, thanks for all the work you've been doing with SRS. I like it that it's food, passion, and uh, changing the world. I'll, I'm going to take food. Ben, which do you want to take? <laughs> it's, it, passion. It, well, let's build. It's like this was created for you, isn't it? I mean, like who better? Food, passion, and changing the world. Um, well, I'm thrilled that you're with us. Uh, I feel like we're having this conversation at a historic moment in terms of kind of the social justice passions that you represent that have inspired many of us. Uh, we're having this conversation a couple of days after President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan. And uh, among the many things in it, it's got a child tax credit that is estimated to hopefully lift as many as 40% of kids who are living in poverty out of poverty. And for a hunger organization like Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign, uh, this is absolutely vital because hunger, of course, is a symptom of a set of deeper issues that have to do with poverty and inequality. And our, our challenge now is going to be to make it a reality. Uh, you know, when you pass a law, it doesn't necessarily mean that things change. Um, the, the laws have to be executed and families have to be able to access what in this case is almost going to be like a form of universal basic income. It was unthinkable three months ago that such a measure, uh, a child poverty measure could pass. It would have been unthinkable under the Obama administration, uh, but now it's law and now it's gonna be our work to make sure it uh, it succeeds. So I'm hoping that we can talk um, not just social justice, but we can talk politics and policy and uh, anything else that uh, you all wanna talk about. But let me just start by thanking you again. I feel like uh, if there were ever two guests that need no introduction, it's Ben and Jerry. You two have known each other since, I guess, junior high and started making ice cream way back when in 1978. Share Our Strength was started in 1984, so you've got me beat. Um, and then 20 years ago, Unilever bought the company. And you're still engaged, even if not uh, operationally, uh, at that level of detail. Uh, but just given what's going on in the world and where we are today, can we just start by getting your take on... How do you think, is the country in a better place? Um, and when we talk about, you know, child poverty and this American rescue plan, um, is, is, do you think it's enough? Is it not enough? Or are we headed in the right direction? Just tell me how you're processing it all. Well, I think, you know, passing legislation that's going to reduce child poverty in the U.S. by 40% is like huge. I mean, it's like, pretty much the best news I've heard in uh, quite a long time. Uh, you know, the thing that's striking to me about it is that in the scheme of things, it doesn't really cost that much money to do it. How much does that part of the bill cost? Oh, let's see. We're talking about a $1.9 trillion bill, and that's, you know, probably I'm going to, if I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it's maybe like $400 billion. Probably less. Yeah, I think it's probably less. I mean, 
the amazing thing to me is that it doesn't really cost that much money compared to the other stuff that uh, the government spends money on to reduce child poverty. And, you know, it's, uh, it's an investment. I mean, you know, there, there's a huge ROI on it because kids that are well-fed uh, become highly functioning adults and kids that aren't don't. And, uh, you know, it's just absurd that it's taken this long, but congratulations to you and all the folks you've been working with, Billy, to, to make that happen. Well, Ben, I said it was unthinkable. Was it unthinkable to you? I mean, you've been on the forefront, you and Jerry, of some, you know, pretty strong ideas, ideas that are considered, you know, uh, left sometimes radical, although to me there's nothing radical at all about feeding kids or saving the environment. But um, did, did it did, did this feel to you like something that could happen? No, I I didn't think our country was going to do that. I mean, it's, it's I, I didn't I didn't think I would see it either. Jerry, what do you think? You know, I th- I think it's uh, on the one hand it's passing a bill which is really important. I think something that is equally important is. Uh, changing the mindset that this is something we need to be doing, that this is something that's positive as opposed to having it be a struggle and having people be resistant to it. I mean, I'm sure we all sometimes wonder why why is this even a discussion or is there uh, objections to feeding hungry kids and getting kids out of poverty. It's, you know, it's kind of crazy. And, uh, you know, you think about developed countries and industrialized countries and with the U.S. being essentially the wealthiest country in the world. And, and, and yet we still have to be fighting for something like this. Well, I love talking to folks who have been carrying the banner uh, and championing these types of things for, um, you know, really for a long time. And there are, of course, you know, ups and downs uh, in this work. Uh, one of our feelings, I guess one of my feelings has been that the intersection of the pandemic and the great need that it exposed and so much of what we've learned about race equity and structural racism uh, and the degree to which they contribute to poverty, it feels to me like they've created a, a you know, a, certainly an enhanced awareness, maybe even more of a permission among a, at least a lot of our stakeholders to get down to some of the root causes of why people are hungry in the first place. One of the things that we always deal with, and I'll oversimplify, but you know, everyone's in favor of feeding a hungry child. Nobody's against that. Uh, not everybody's in favor of doing the things you need to do in society to prevent kids from being hungry in the first place. And I'm just curious how you think about this moment. You've seen a lot. And as I say, you've seen ups and downs. And as you know, these struggles for social justice are sometimes you know, a step forward and half a step back. Is there something about this moment that uh, we need to, to seize? Well, I think that uh, what we need to seize about this moment is the issue of racial justice. You know, there hasn't really been a whole lot of racial justice in this country since its founding. I mean, yes, it's gotten better over the years, but 
when you look at the way that we still are mired in systemic racism throughout our society, I think there's finally an opening uh, to doing something about it, uh, you know, because of all the protests this past summer. And, you know, the reality is that if we are not able right now to pivot from protest to policy, all those protests were for nothing. I mean, the, the end result of protest needs to be a change in policy. And that's why Jerry and I are focused on the campaign to end qualified immunity, which is it's the legal doctrine that is the reason why cops end off getting off scot-free when they brutalize and kill unarmed black people. And, you know, there's bills in the federal legislatures and in the state legislatures right now. And we need to make our voice heard to our legislators. So this is an incredibly important, uh, in a, kind of under the category of police reform that's been proposed. Um, are there, uh, and, and this, this question may be premature, Ben, but are there, uh, are, are there states that are out ahead of this on, um, on ending qualified immunity? Uh, is, is this thing you know, roaring through some states and slowed down in others? What's the status of it? Uh, it has passed in Colorado. Uh, it's currently under discussion in the legislatures in New Mexico and Maryland and I think Wisconsin and California and a few others. So, yeah, it's it's a thing. It's happening. And you know, uh, it's really interesting that the major opposition to it is the fraternal order of police. And, you know, they're going around telling legislators, well, you know, if you allow someone who is brutalized by the police to uh, sue that policeman, uh, you know, those policemen are usually indemnified by the local municipality, and you're going to end up having to pay money because your policeman uh, brutalized or killed somebody. And, and that argument that the municipality is going to have to pay money, that's, that's, that, that's creating a lot of uh, legislators who are, who, who are against it. And it's, it's just amazing to me uh it, it, you know that they just want to let these cops off who have committed these heinous acts uh because they don't want to pay the penalty of having cops who do such things on the force and is it fair to say that uh, i've seen a lot from the two of you over the last number of months on this issue has this become your uh, number one priority in terms of your focus, what you're speaking out about. Ben and Jerry's, of course, is, and your foundation is known for so many different issues, but this seems to have, have kind of risen to the top given the urgency of, of, of what's going on in our streets right now. Yeah, this is, this is what Ben and I are focused on. Uh, and, you know, it, it's really interesting for a number of reasons. As Ben mentioned, there's 
legislation in states. There's legislation that's been introduced at the federal level. And when we started getting involved, we started connecting with advocacy groups that are all across the ideological spectrum that want to end qualified immunity. So it's libertarians and liberals. It's groups like the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, as well as the Cato Institute and Americans for Prosperity and the Institute for Justice. So it's just extremely broad support for this. Even at the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas wants to get rid of qualified immunity, as does Sonia Sotomayor. So we've put together a coalition of not only all of these advocacy groups, probably 16 of them, but there are over 1,400 professional athletes who signed an open letter to end qualified immunity. We have a business letter with 700 business leaders who signed on. There's musicians. Uh, it's kind of amazing. And it's it's not an anti-police measure. It's about accountability. Uh, but unfortunately, the people who are disproportionately impacted are black and brown people. And, you know, it comes back, Billy, to what you were saying in the beginning about the pandemic and how that's really brought some things up in front of us that we can no longer ignore, whether it's racial justice or the health impacts on people, wealth inequality. I mean, my experience with the pandemic is that we're, we're almost two different countries, people that have been severely impacted, people that have lost jobs, people that have gotten the virus. And then there's a whole bunch of people that haven't really felt it at all. Yeah, it's it's uh, the, the divide is stark in that way. And we're experiencing now, I think, a, another manifestation of the divide in terms of folks who are vaccinated and are feeling free to go about their lives and those who aren't. Um, but the, but I would say the inequality has to be the, to me, the defining um, aspect of, of, of this pandemic. And so the qualified immunity um, campaign is going to be state by state. This all has to be done at the state level. Is, am I understanding that right? No, there's, there's federal legislation as well that has been proposed by uh, Representative Ayanna Presley. So that's currently in the House. Uh, so it can be done both at the federal level and it is also being uh, addressed at the state level in case there is not a, a federal law uh, in this Congress. Do you, do you both ever just stop for a moment and think about how remarkable it is that you can um, be representing and be at the core of such a big uh, business and still talk freely and authentically about the issues that are most passionate to you? Uh, you, you've got to be the envy of, of, of the business world in terms of your ability to do that. Or do you take it for granted now, or do you realize just how special that is? <laughs> well, let, let's start. I, I want to start with one thing. I think Ben and I, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but you know, we're, we're totally amazed at uh, 
the success of Ben and Jerry's to the level it's reached. Uh, it's nothing we ever would have expected. Uh, and we're also, I think, surprised that the company continues to be on the forefront of speaking out about controversial issues like racial justice. Uh, you know, I think for Ben and me, we're both pretty much free to say and do whatever we want. Uh, many things we do on our own that's not representing Ben and Jerry's, but uh, the company doesn't seem to be running away from anything that Ben and I talk about. No, and it's, it's, it seems like just the opposite. It seems like there was a, a point, at least a number of years ago, where they realized that was so core to the authenticity of the company and the brand and uh, and you know who your consumers are that um, they, they didn't want there to be any distance. I mean, do you ever have a moment where you think, uh, gosh, before I, you know, it, it's hard to separate you individually, of course, from Ben and Jerry's. Do you ever have a moment where you think I better uh, check with somebody before I say this, or is that, uh, is there no filter? <laughs> you know, Billy, if you, if you know Ben at all, uh, <laughs> that's not even a question you have to ask. <laughs> I mean, it's for Ben, he, he's always been about telling the truth and no filter, let the impacts be what they are. And that's, that's the beauty of Ben. Well, you know, one of the things I'd like to ask you about it, and, and maybe it's a little bit different than some previous conversations you've had. I know you've been, you've talked a lot and you get asked a lot about how you did what you did, how you built Ben and Jerry's. And it's an amazing, brilliant, inspiring story. Um, and it's been told well. Um, instead of asking you about that, I'm interested in how you think others can go about it. I feel like you've inspired so many folks and particularly young people to understand that you may not have to, it may not have to be an either or choice to go into business uh, or to try and change the world, to try and improve society. Um, and I'm really curious how you think about it. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, probably particularly by young students. And I talk at a lot of business schools. I know you have uh, if, if somebody were trying to do what you've done and, um, didn't have 35 years to get there, um, what, what are some of the shortcuts? How can you build a company and build a brand like Ben and Jerry's that is free to speak the truth? Uh, what advice would you give somebody today that was setting out to emulate you? And I know there's many who are, you know, I, I think that, uh, it the the conventional wisdom when Ben and Jerry started was that it's not possible for a for-profit business to work to take stands on social issues and improve the quality of life in the general community. That that was going to have a negative impact on profits. And what Ben and Jerry has proved is that that's not the case. It, it was just a bunch of self-serving bullshit from, uh, you know, the, the, the business community that, you know, didn't want to focus on, uh, did, didn't want to put energy into helping deal with social problems. And, 
so we proved that you can do both. You know, when we talk about taking stands on social issues, that they're controversial, I mean, they're not really controversial. Uh, the majority of the country believes in the social stands that we take. Sure, there are people who don't agree with it, uh, but you know the nation. The nature of our country is that, you know, if if some piece of legislation passes with sixty percent of the votes, you know, we think, oh man, that's amazing. Everybody came together. So, you know, there. You know, I mean, our stands are based on, you know, basic American values of equality, justice, fairness. Uh, when you stick up for those things, most customers really like it. And, uh, you know, I think the I think what goes on with most customers is that they're buying products from businesses despite what the business stands for. They're, you know, they, they see corporations as self-serving. You know, they're trying to maximize profits for them and, uh, you know, cut costs and externalize their, their environmental impacts. Uh, you know, corporations are, you know, what, pay billions of dollars a year for lobbyists in D.C. that they don't really advertise. Uh, you know, that are working to undermine uh, legislation which would benefit the general public. Uh, they're lobbying for stuff in their own narrow self-interest. And then they advertise, you know, the pittance in their billion-dollar worlds that they give to, you know, some charity to make them look good. So, you know, your question was... You know, someone who's starting out a business from the beginning, <laughs> how do you how do you do it? I I think the key is to make your values very clear at the outset of your business, and to act on those values and and communicate to your potential customers in that way uh, what you stand for, and realize that. Uh, you know, traditional advertising and PR, which companies spend, you know, billions more dollars on, is essentially, uh, you know, made up stories and images, uh, you know, hiring endorsers to put their faces or names on something to take a entity which is concerned only in terms of maximizing its own narrow self-interest and make people like them. And what we discovered at Ben & Jerry's was that for less money than it costs to do that, you can actually do stuff that helps people and they're going to like you because you're actually doing stuff. And you, and you also have, it sounds like implicit in this uh, is uh, a faith that uh, people's values were aligned with yours and that they would recognize that. I mean, I mean it's, a, uh, it's a very optimistic view of the American consumer, one that I subscribe to and I hope is right, but it sounds like, you know, that's the other half of the equation here is that they're going to 
they're going to say those values are mine too. That's right. And when you form a relationship with your customer that's based on shared values, that's the strongest, most lasting relationship you can ever make. I mean, you know, companies, you know, boost sales because they came up with a funny TV ad or a cute TV ad or whatever, but it's, it's ephemeral. It, it comes and goes, you know, that fad is over and, you know, they're happy to go somewhere else. It doesn't really build genuine customer loyalty. You know, I think the other thing that's implicit in here, but I think it's important to make it explicit and, uh, and please push back if you, if you disagree. Um, but we haven't said it, which, and uh, to me is that, you know, at the, the core of this, there also has to be a product of real quality. Uh, cause I can't tell you how many kind of like, I'll just call them social enterprises I've seen where somebody thought they were going to be selling something because, uh, you know, a percentage went to, uh, support homelessness or percentage want to support the environment uh, and that that would be enough for the consumer. My, from a distance, nowhere near as close to it as you are, but my perception has been it's got to be both. And at the heart of it, there's got to be a great product. There's got to be Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which everybody loves. That's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, they might they might try it the first time because they agree with your values, but you know, if it's shitty ice cream, they ain't going to come back again. <laughs> you know, people, you know, that's just not how people are <laughs> and they shouldn't be. I mean, yeah, you, you gotta have high quality products and, uh, and values. I, I mean, you know, I mean, Ben and Jerry's happens to be at, uh, well, it used to be at the upper end of uh, ice cream quality and cost. I mean, now, you know, a bunch of other ice creams have come out that are that are more expensive than Ben and Jerry's that use really, uh, you know, expensive ingredients and, and flavors and stuff like that. But I think you look at a company like Newman's Own and, uh, you know, they are... They are in the, um, what, the medium segment of the market, the middle of the road of the market. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're doing fine and giving away all their profits. So on an issue like, um, let's go back to qualified immunity, but we could take a number of different issues. Uh, how does it work between Ben and Jerry? One of you is, you know, really fired up about something. You call the other, you talk it through somebody pushes back, you reach or, or, or do you mostly feel the same way about things? What kind of negotiation is required? So I think we mostly feel the same way about things. Uh, and Ben is almost always the person who is leading the charge because that's who Ben is. And I'm a guy who, uh, I guess is a little more measured and i like to be a few steps behind ben i think we've always had a very similar worldview and we've always uh had very similar values uh ben is more comfortable being out front uh you know qualified immunity is is 
an issue that's been a little bit different for us because I think we've we've both been in like totally right from the start. Uh, and it, it it's because I think the issue is so clear around police reform and racial justice and something needs to be done. Uh, you know, Ben talked about going from protest to policy and and we have a moment in time where that can happen. Let me ask you about another ingredient that seems to be part of everything you do. At, at Share Our Strength, we've got a set of core values about um, innovation and uh, ending hunger and poverty and our mission and being inclusive. But one of our core va- values is having fun. Um, and I, I, I've read you talking about, you know, using ice cream to talk about uh, difficult issues in ways that creates an opening. It seems just that um, just making this fun is an important way of reaching people. I've got to believe you've been intentional about that from the beginning. Is that is that part of the secret sauce? You know, ice cream definitely makes things fun. And as you referenced, Billy, being able to bring ice cream along to talking about serious issues uh, is, I mean, you can't put a value on that. Uh, and, you know, most people want to be motivated by things that uh, are not a drag or a burden. They they want to be motivated by things that they're enjoying themselves, but also making progress. And I, I think at Ben & Jerry's, we've been really lucky about that. Uh, and of course, having Ben be able to create flavors that that go along with issues, that's it's a major thing, having a guy who can just create a flavor when you need him to create a flavor. Well, you know, Jerry's being very modest. Uh, you know, the company kind of motto, if it's not fun, why do it? That's Jerry's. I like that. <laughs> Uh, I keep thinking of something that uh, Warren Beatty once said when he was asked if uh, why he made the movie Bullworth, which dealt with race and politics. Um, and uh, he said, if it's not entertaining, it's just C-SPAN. And, you know, it was the same notion that you've, you know, you, you've got to find ways to reach people that are going to be accessible to them and are going to be fun. Uh, do you guys ever, uh, it might sound like a strange question, but do you ever uh, grade yourselves? You, you, you've, you've, got many interests, many issues, many causes. Uh, you make fantastic, the foundation makes fantastic grants. Uh, do you have a, uh, even an internal sense of what success looks like? Or, or did we accomplish 90% of what we wanted to accomplish? I'm just trying to think about how you, you know, you, you're, um, you've represented just so many important causes over time. What does success look like for you? How do you, how do you decide where you are relative to where you had hoped to be on the social impact side? Well, <laughs> they say a man's reach should always exceed his grasp. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, don't bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've spent, uh, you know, decades working to shift national budget priorities away from uh, 
preparing to kill millions of people and toward uh, feeding and uh, taking care of basic human needs of people. And uh, uh, I, I, I mean, it's interesting now that you're bringing up that, you know, we got this, uh, we got this, this money into this legislation to actually feed people. Uh, you know, it's an incredible success. Uh, but in terms of cutting the Pentagon budget, uh, you know, that hasn't been successful at all. And, you know, when I first started focusing on uh, getting involved in, um, well, that, that particular work, shifting national budget priorities, you know, somebody who had been working in the homeless community, uh, you know, had, you know, sent me some quote about how, you know, our work uh, is never going to be complete. We're part of a long chain. We stand on the shoulders of others that have come before us. There'll be others who come after us. And, you know, I, I told her I thought that was bullshit. And, and that was why, uh, you know, the nonprofit world never got anywhere, that you don't have objective measurable goals like we do in the business community. And, you know, so I tried to have those and uh, failed. Uh, and so I'm coming around to uh, her way of thinking. Well, you know, I'm kind of conflicted because there's a there's a big part of me that's of the you know your uh, your reach should exceed your grasp grasp school. Um, but one of the other you know mantras for us has been from the writer and social activist Jonathan Kozel, who said somewhere that you should pick battles that are big enough to matter but small enough to win. Um, and so, and I guess I like both of those constructs because you, you don't want to settle for small things, but you do need to have wins. You've had both right? Uh, as you're saying, uh, sometimes you won and sometimes you're still battling whether it's the Pentagon budget. You, you had a win, I had a failure. But uh, no, I, I think this issue of qualified immunity is uh, what Jonathan Kozo was talking about. It's big enough to matter, but small enough to win. So it can, it can happen. And, I th and it sounds like it, it will happen, right? That's not going away. Only... Only if you and everyone else who's listening to this gets on the phone to their legislators and tells them they want it to happen. Is there a place, Ben, to get more information about it? Is there a website that we should be steering people to? Yeah. I guess the Ben, or is it, is it your website? The, well, it's, it's campaign to end qualified immunity.org. It's, it's okay. a lot of campaign. letters, but it's, it's kind of easy to remember campaign to end qualifiedimmunity.org. And, you know, once you go there and you get tired of tapping in all those letters all the time, you could just tap in c-t-e-q-i.org. Take you to the same place. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I promised one of my great colleagues that I would channel a question uh, for her because the Share Our Strength staff is, you know, they do amazing work. The reason I get, they're the reason I get to do this. And I asked if anybody had something that they just had to ask uh, ben and Jerry and Mallory Mahler wanted to know um, your favorite collaboration. Hers is Change the World, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, as you know, with Colin Kaepernick. Um, but she wanted to know, what do you have a, a favorite collaboration that has stood out? 
Well, I, I like that one. Uh, ben and Jerry's has also been active in the last few years around criminal justice reform uh, and has worked in St. Louis to close the workhouse prison, which is this notoriously bad prison. Uh, and prior to that, Ben and Jerry's was working in North Carolina with the NAACP there around uh, the voting rights uh, and reauthorizing uh, voting rights. So, you know, those, those are it for me. So one of the great things to understand about the company is that uh, it's able to use its voice and talk about issues, but at the same time, it connects with and works with nonprofits on the ground who are the experts and actually doing the work. And very so, grassroots focused, right? Very grassroots focused. Uh, you know, in talking about the workhouse prison, uh, Ben was actually out there protesting. So I think when when you have not just the company getting involved, but uh, you know, Ben himself going out there, that, that really adds uh, something extra to it. Well, you know, that, in, that, that example of, uh, of the company's campaign to close the workhouse prison uh, is kind of interesting because we won. Uh, the city council voted to close down this prison that was holding people who couldn't afford bail for up to a year before they got to trial. And it was, you know, horrible, rat-infested conditions. And so we won. The city council voted to close it down, and then the mayor refused to do it. So now there's this amazing black woman, Tashora, who's running in St. Louis for mayor on that platform to close down the workhouse. And they got in touch with Jerry and I, and they said, you know, can you help? Uh, and, uh, we decided that we, that, that I would come out with a Ben's best ice cream flavor. You know, the, the company, you know, they have their rules and whatever, but you know, I don't. So <laughs> I, I have my own brand, Ben's best. And, uh, the, their campaign was amazing. They came out with this flavor called St. Louis gooey. And, uh, <laughs> it's because, in, in St. Louis, they have this, this dessert that everybody loves called gooey butter cake. And uh, so that's, you know, that, that's going to be part of this flavor. And, uh, you know, the, the, what, this, this thing, this, this podcast, this is like about passion, food, and something else? And changing the world. Exactly. <laughs> Right, that fits. Yeah, so it's all combined in this campaign and this ice cream flavor uh, in St. Louis. So, do, do you? You know, another question. I know I have to let you guys go in a couple of minutes. Um, another question I wanted to ask you, though, which kind of goes to the core of what you were just talking about, is, and I get this question a lot. I'm sure you do too. Again, particularly from young people. Uh, and it, it usually goes, uh, you know, if I really want to change the world, should I go into business? Should I go into government? Should I go into the nonprofit sector? You're obviously, uh, you know, the number one example of how business can do that. But how do you answer that 
question for folks because there's obviously there's not one necessarily one right answer. But how do you think about it? Where where can you know if you're just starting out, uh, where can you have the most impact? Which sector, or is that the wrong way to think about it? I I think it has to do with your own personal, um, you, you know, passions and skill. Uh, you know, you can certainly move a lot faster in business. It, you can also move, I think, a lot faster in local government. Hmm. The thing that moves the slowest, I think, is Washington, D.C. Some of the most depressing hours I've spent have been crawling the halls of Congress trying to talk <laughs> to Congress people. I don't do that anymore. Uh, it's it's even slower now than than when you did God, it. It's yeah. just getting worse. Yeah, but I mean, you did it. I mean, you know, your campaign to to end childhood hunger. I mean, I just love it. I how how the heck did you do it? Well, you, you know, it's funny that you would say that, uh, Ben, in this context, because a lot of what we did was at the state level. And one of the reasons now that I'm so interested in what's going to happen with this child tax credit is we looked at programs that Congress had passed, you know, a number of years ago, like school breakfast or like summer meals. And we found out that school breakfast is probably the best example I can can give you. This is pre-pandemic, of course, but there's 22 million kids in the country who get a free or reduced price school lunch. And all 22 million were eligible for breakfast, but only 9 million were getting it. And only 3 million were getting meals in the summertime. And again, all 22 million were eligible for it. So you think about these programs that have, you know, you've worked your heart out for years to get them passed. And there, uh, there's all these kind of bureaucratic and logistical obstacles to kids enrolling. Uh, and so we just went about knocking those down, but we did it at the state level. We started working with governors, mayors, school superintendents to the very point that I think you just made about local impact. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we added over 3 million kids to the, to the school breakfast program. We set up thousands of summer meal sites. I, I remember once a conversation a few years ago with Marion Wright Edelman, where we were sitting around at a a table talking about uh, what kind of change do we want to create and what new laws do we want to pass? And she said, well, you know, we, we fought and won some great uh, legislative victories 25, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, then we stopped paying attention and we haven't fulfilled the promise of them. So let, let's go do that. If not first, at least at the same time. So we got very focused, you know, at the, at the local level and it, it, it made a, a, an enormous difference. Um, Last two things for for you. You know, you, you we've talked about the inspirational effect you've had on so many. I'm sure you've been asked to mentor others. Uh, who inspired each of you? Was it uh, was it parents? Was it a teacher? Was it somebody else in business? Where where did your inspiration come from originally, and where does it still come from? You've sustained. You know, one of, to me, one of the things about passion is that it uh, to really get things done in this world for all the reasons we've talked about. It's got to be something that's going to sustain you over a long period of time. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Cathedral Within about cathedral building as a metaphor for, you know, you can work on something your whole life and not see it finished. The great cathedrals took hundreds of years to build and everybody who worked on them knew that what they were doing was, you know, part of something larger than themselves, but they might not see it finished. Uh, what what has sustained each of you? What's inspired each of you? You know, for me, uh, a lot of it is being able to work in partnership with Ben uh you know we're we're 
obviously very good friends. And uh, to me, I would never think of doing something by myself. Uh, but the opportunity to work with Ben on things, uh, I find very motivating. And, uh, you know, we not only work on things together, but we we get to hang out. And you really can't beat that. Wow, that's a beautiful answer. You better have the same answer, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly neither one of us could have done it on our own. Uh, it's it's great to be working with a partner and, you know, especially, you know, not just any partner, but I mean, you, you couldn't ask for a, a better, high integrity, fun, smart person to hang out with than Jerry. But I, I think that... Um, you know, Martin Luther King has always been my uh, inspiration. Uh, there's also a guy named Maurice Perpera, which was this old eccentric. Well, you know, I call him old. He was like probably my age now. I'm also old. How do you spell uh, his last name? Perpera, P-U-R-P-O-R-A. Okay. He, he had a a little diner that he rescued from some junkyard that he uh, changed into the Royal Yard kind of gourmet diner. You know, I mean, he also had a on his property down in Brattleboro, he also had a, uh, you know, an amphitheater and a stage he was building for performing arts. He was, he, he was just, uh, you know, the proverbial guy with a twinkle in his eye and just, you know, was just in just enjoying uh, the work that that he was doing. And uh, so that was inspiring to me, too. The last thing I was going to ask you is, um, you know, we've talked about your story. We've talked about your story being told um, a number of different times in a number of different ways. Is, is there any part of your story individual or or joint that is still untold that you wish wasn't <laughs> not much of an answer for either of us you know uh did, did i stump did i stump the band <laughs> uh you know i was just talking with ben the other day i was saying i uh i wish i was less public than i am uh so you're saying that uh the answer is no there is nothing <laughs> you'd like people to know they don't already know <laughs> um I, I remember somebody once when they retired said they were going to resume life as a shy person so maybe you're ready to do, do, do that at some point uh it has been so great talking to both of you and you know so remarkable that not only changing the world but you you know you invented something new you created a new model um that um you know over fits and starts and lots of different variations has now become a the gold standard for what many people want to see business accomplish. And, uh, you know, inventing something new, creating something new, that's, uh, th there's an artistic quality, uh, to, to what you've done that, um, to, to me stands out above and beyond the ice cream and the business model. And, uh, I really admire it. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, great to be with you, Billy, and congratulations again on the amazing success. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Well, we've been talking to Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, known to the world as Ben and Jerry's. Uh, thrilled to have them as guests on Add Passion and Stir. And thanks to our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign for making this podcast possible. And of course, our producer, Paul Whittle at District Productive in Washington, D.C. You can go to our website at uh, addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes and rate them and rank them and share them with uh, your friends. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Mm-hmm.